Good morning. Oh, good to see you all. Uh, my name is Kondo. I'm one of the pastors here. For those of you I've not had the opportunity um, to meet, so, so good to have you, particularly if you're a guest with us, a special welcome to you. Uh, it's a big deal that you chose to come and spend some of your morning here with us. Um, Listen, we have some business to get to uh, as we wrap a series that we've been in for a number of weeks. But before we do that, I want to give you a quick forecast um, of what's going to be happening next week, where we're going from um, here on. So next week, we're launching a brand new series that we're calling Rebuildable. And we're going to work through some of the truths in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It doesn't take much looking around to get the very distinct sense that the world in which we live is broken. It's hurting. Uh, Racial relationships are fractured. You look around and financially there's struggles. Marriages are coming apart at the seams. What we believe, though, as a church is that there is nothing so broken that God cannot restore it. That God cannot renew it. That God cannot rebuild it. But here's the interesting thing. So often the way God chooses to restore and rebuild things in the broken world around us is through us. Through his church. Through his people. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. The question though is where do we start in a county of 50,000 people with so many things that seem to be broken and going wrong, where do we start? That can often be overwhelming and cause us to stay stagnant. And so this series, we're going to meet a man named Nehemiah who entered into a deeply broken world to play his part in seeing it restored. And so we look forward to journeying uh, through that book together starting next week. But for this week, uh, we are wrapping up a series that we've been in called The Talk. Um, And The Talk has been a series in which we're having a conversation about love and sex and marriage and singleness and dating in no particular order. And um, growing up in the church, this was just a conversation that wasn't spoken of much. And whenever it was spoken of, it was spoken of in hush and ashamed tones. And... um, What this series is, in many ways, is what I wish I would have heard about love and sex and marriage and dating and singleness when I was growing up. This is, in many ways, what I want my kids to know about these issues as they grow up. Regardless of what they choose to do with it, these are the pieces that I would want them to know. Um, As we started this series, we latched onto a very central, very um, significant key truth Um, And we said that if we latch onto this truth, it will influence the rest of the series and I trust the rest of our lives. And this truth, simply put, is this. Marriage exists ultimately to paint a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. Marriage is ultimately about Jesus and the church. When God created marriage, he did it so that it would paint a picture of the selfless and sacrificial way in which Jesus Christ gave himself up to see a sinful and undeserving people called the church come alive, as we just sang, and soar into becoming everything that he designed the church to be. And so a marriage is going to thrive when the couple learns what it looks like to selflessly and sacrificially give themselves up to see the other person soar and thrive and become everything that God designed them to be. 
And what we said is if we latch onto that concept, if we hold onto that, it's going to deeply shape and influence and transform the way we think about marriage, the way we think about sex, the way we think about love, the way we think about singleness, the way we think about dating. And we're going to see this emerge again here this morning. But needless to say, I'm having a conversation like this, walking through a series like this, naturally is going to stir questions in us. And so even as we were uh, laying out the series, we put in this extra week in the event that we would need to address some of the questions that this series unearthed. And it has unearthed a number of questions. And so this morning, that's what I'm going to attempt to do, to answer some of the questions that were raised throughout this series. Now, let me just tell you again, we're not going to be able to exhaustively answer any of the questions. We're not going to be able to answer all of the questions that came in. But my counsel to you is don't let this talk end with this series. Continue the conversation with people you trust, people in your community. Uh, Continue to lean in, ultimately understanding that it is a truth of God's word that has the final say in it all. But this morning, we're going to answer um, a number of questions. Um, Question number one, how do I know if he's the one? If she's the one, how do I know I've found the one? And here's the underlying belief that if part of God's plan for your life is marriage, then I believe God is not arbitrary in his plans. He actually has someone in mind for you. The question is, how do you know who that person is or if the person you're with now is the one? Um, we saw in this series um, that when you become a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, that your being, your body, no longer belongs to you. It's been bought at a price. It now belongs to God himself. Um, so I can't therefore just decide that I'm going to give myself away to someone else in an exclusive relationship without God's sign-off, without God's permission, since I now belong to him. So how do I know that this is the person God is saying, go ahead. You have the permission. You have the sign-off. And the answer to that question is, I'm not sure. Um, But thankfully, it's not my job to be sure for you. Now, um, I can give you um, a number of uh, litmus tests that I would encourage you to walk through um, at a minimum. A number of questions that are worth bringing to your relationship or bringing uh, to this person, if there is a person in mind. A a number of litmus tests. Um, The first litmus test is a test that I refer to as the free test. Uh, The free test is really simple. Is this person free? (laughs) Is this person actually available? (laughs) Because if this person is in a committed exclusive relationship with someone else, not the one. (laughs) Not the one. If you have to home wreck in order to build your home, not the one. The second test I would give is the for life test. And the question behind that is, is this a person that I believe 
I could pursue in a full life relationship called marriage? Is this a person I look at and say, yep, I could pursue this person for the purpose of entering into a lifelong relationship called marriage? If you look at this person and say, um, I don't think so. Not the one. Leave that person alone. Do you see it as a potential permanent relationship? If not, leave it alone. And by the way, um, let me just say this. The idea, because I'll hear this oftentimes, it's like, well, but you've got to you get into a romantic relationship to find out. The idea, by the way, that dating is a good way to find out if the person is the one. Please, child, no, it's not. It's a terrible way to find that out. Because if we're dating, and we never will, unless your name is Melissa uh, Simfukwe, but, but if we're dating... I am going to dress to impress. Boy, I'm going to be on my best behavior. I'm going to be veiling and covering up every single flaw that I think has a potential of causing you to think less of me. I'm going to want to put my best foot forward. And if I don't like my feet, I want to put my shoes forward. Whatever the case is, I want to convince you that I'm awesome. Dating is not the place where you're going to keep it real. And then you wake up one day on the honeymoon and you're like, oh my goodness. That was makeup. I thought you were black, but whatever. Uh, the point is, <laughs> you, it's not the greatest way to go about doing that. So if you don't know, please, my recommendation is stay friends. A great place to observe what a person is made of is in the context of friendship. When guards are somewhat down... And you're interacting somewhat honestly. Um, The third test I would recommend is the follower test. And this is important because you might say like, "Mm, yeah, Bieber is free and I can see myself being with him for life. Well, here's um, the follower test. And the follower test is, is this person a follower of Jesus Christ? And I mean follower in the verb sense. That you observe their lives and there is evidence that they are actually following the person of Jesus Christ. Not follower as in they profess to follow, but follower as in they practice following the person of Jesus Christ. Because if they're not evidently and actively moving in the direction of Jesus, they're not the one. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and they're not following Jesus Christ, you're going to naturally be moving in different directions. So that's not the one. Definitely not now. And I've got, I've got to say this, and then we, we really do have to move on. Um, don't do that thing where you decide, but I really want him to be the one. So can I coach him to Christ? I mean, can I coax him to follow Jesus? Because maybe if I just convince enough, then they'll follow, he'll follow Jesus, and then he'll have the follower test passed, and then he'll be the one. Don't do that. Number one, your motives are going to be really skewed in why you are doing that. And what you'll be after is not what's best for them. Love will no longer be the driving force in the equation. It's going to be you have an agenda, and so you're trying to make the agenda work. But secondly, the dude will follow Jesus for you. But the question is, he's really following Jesus. And now you have to spend the rest of your life, please keep following. Hey, and you have to keep coaxing. 
and keep coaxing. So that's not something I'd recommend. Do not start a mentor-to-marry program. That's not a good idea. If the person is not following Jesus, leave it alone. Not the one. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Look um, at, at what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, uh, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? You can't latch on with somebody who doesn't believe or follow the person of Jesus Christ. Non-negotiable. 1 Corinthians 7, 39, look at what he says. A a, a woman is bound to a husband as long as he lives. But if a husband dies, she's single. She's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So again, at a bare minimum, if somebody's not following Jesus, not the one. If they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, definitely the Bible would say that should never happen. There's no wiggle room on the follower test. And the last test is what I would call the finest test. Um, And relax, I don't mean it that way. Um, And this is a tough one because the question is, do I believe that this person is God's best for me? Because if nothing else, you know God is not going to give you second best for you. Is this person God's best for me? Do you have a deep sense of peace that this is God's finest choice for you? This is really hard to decipher if we're honest. But I believe that when it's time, if part of God's plan for your life is marriage, you will know. You will not need to convince yourself. You will not have to build a case to make the restlessness inside you go away. There will be this sense of peace. There will be the sense of confirmation. There will be this sense of the Lord's affirmation that this is his best for you. He will make it clearer and clearer with confirmation after confirmation. If what you're feeling is confusion and uncertainty, and I feel like I have to keep convincing myself, probably not the one. Because God wants you to know his best for you. He doesn't want you to be unsure. He doesn't want you to be guessing. Is this God's best? He loves to bring clarity to the places he is leading. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ who is honestly keen to run after God and his best, I'm convinced you will know when you're forcing a relationship that shouldn't be. You know it. And some of you might be in one right now. And you, even as I say these words, you can feel a heaviness within you versus a peace like, oh my goodness, he did that for us. Now, how he does that, how he brings clarity, how he confirms, how he brings peace, that's up to him. But the point is, you will know. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. We'll have these up on the screens as well. Um, um, It says... Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
The reason I read these verses, by the way, is because I find it interesting. Paul doesn't tell us how God will make his peace known. Paul doesn't tell us what his peace feels like. Paul doesn't tell us what color his peace is. He doesn't tell us what time of night the peace will come. He just says, God will bring his peace. The point of this verse, I love this too, is Paul is saying your job is not to figure out how God will confirm things. Your job is prayer, petition, thanksgiving. Your job is surrender. Your job is to run after him. His job is to bring about the peace. But the point is, when his peace shows up, you will not be wondering, like, I wonder if his peace is here yet. But if somebody says, well, how will I know his peace is here? That's why I say to you, I don't know. I don't know how he'll do it for you, but I'm convinced that if you were running after him and you were surrendering your life to him, he will make it clear and there'll be no mistake to you that, oh my goodness, peace has come. And peace doesn't devolve, it continues to increase. You won't have to guess. And so my answer again is, I don't know how you know. Because how he chooses to show you is up to him if you're in a close relationship with him. Um, I I was reminded in the first service of a time my mom and I, I don't remember who else was there, but I remember my mom specifically were at some other people's home for dinner and was sitting at the table and cuisine was legit. Um, And uh, so a number of us are sitting around the table. My mom's sitting, sitting across from me. Dinner is served. I have first helping. Kill it. No chance that things stood absolutely delicious. So I reach out and have a second helping, kill it, it's gone. Absolutely delicious. So I reach out to get a third helping and my mom looks across at me and she says, (laughs) and so I just, I just drop the serving spoon. I say, thank you so much. That was delicious. I've had quite enough. Thank you. Anybody else who's watching this interaction is like, oh my goodness, she's so sweet. Did you see how she looked at him and smiled? Mm -mm. She did not smile. She said, boy, don't you embarrass us by eating all these people's food in this house, making me look like I didn't raise a boy right. That's what she was saying. How do you know, Kondo? Because I have a relationship with my mother. And so she knows how to communicate to me, maybe in a different way than she might communicate to somebody else. To everybody else, she's just smiling. To me, she's communicating, put the food down. And I'm telling you right now, That as you journey with God, he will clarify, he will confirm, and to some of you, he'll say, put the boy down. You've had enough. God has his way of clarifying. And so, the free test, the for life test, the follower test, and the finest test. Is this God's finest? And is he confirming that? Because he loves to confirm his best for us. And until you have that, that sense of his confirmation, I would say leave the relationship alone. Um, All right, next question. How far is too far? And um, for anybody who may not understand the implication of that question, um, this is saying, okay, Assuming I'm in a romantic relationship with someone, or maybe not, uh, we're just special friends. How far is too far to go in expressing affection physically before you're married? How far is too far? 
If we have a scale of 1 to 10, and 1 is interlocking fingers, and 10 is interlocking bodies, you know what I'm saying? Um, How far is too far? What's a good number? Does the Bible have any thoughts on that? Uh, When I was growing up, uh, what I knew was that I wasn't supposed to have sex with somebody who I wasn't married to. No interlocking bodies. You may not go to a 10, but anything below that, no one really said much about, which is really dangerous when you're dealing with a teenager. The buzzword was virginity. Uh, Are you a virgin? Uh, Are you going to keep your virginity until you get married? And by that, it meant that you haven't had sexual intercourse with someone. But as we saw a number of weeks ago, that's not how the Bible uses the word virgin by the way. When the Bible uses the word virgin, it's speaking about being untouched by anyone in any way that only your spouse should touch you. But in a different passage of scripture, Paul brings a little more clarity and I think gives us a much more compelling principle when it comes to the question, how far is too far? Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And look at what he says in the first part of verse 6, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. That in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. In the matter of sexual interaction, do not wrong or take advantage of another person. This is such an incredible principle that falls deeply in the category of things I wish I would have known. Uh, Let me cut to the chase and just give you the heart of the principle uh, as it touches down in our lives. Here's the principle Paul introduces. We'll have it up on the screens. He's saying, do not arouse in another person sexual desires that are not yours to fulfill. The language of taking advantage or wronging a person. This is what he means. Do not even arouse in another person sexual desires that are not yours to fulfill. So more specifically, let's bring that even more into focus. He's saying, do not awaken sexual desire in someone who is not your spouse because it's not your place to fulfill it. So how far can you go? Paul would say, go as far as you possibly can without provoking sexual desire in someone who's not your spouse. If you know that it provokes the other person sexually, it stirs them up sexually, don't do it. And if you're not sure if it provokes the other person sexually, don't do it. And please don't argue with me about that. 
Well, but if you don't know, though, listen. Oh, it's the craziest thing, right? So there were four colored wires. I can say colored. There were four colored wires, and um, all I knew about them was that if I cut the wrong one, the whole place would go. Problem. I didn't know which one of them was the wrong one. So what I did was I decided to just, oh, just cut one and hope it works out bigly. No, dummy, you do not cut the wires. Leave the wires alone. Why are you cutting on the wires? What did they do to you in the first place? But the smart thing to do would be to leave the wires. Do not cut them if you don't know which one of those wires is going to have explosive effects. The new ethic for a Christian is the law of love. And the law of love asks the question, how can I be of greatest benefit to you to help push you towards the person of Jesus Christ? And how can I avoid anything that gets in the way of that? And by the way, if if you're in a committed relationship with somebody, it is a great time to have those conversations honestly. So you can talk to each other about that kind of thing. Hey, when I give you rock fist, like, is that okay? No, it's not. Something about the... Just has me going all crazy. So like, oh man, no more rock fist for you. Okay. You know, when we interlock fingers, I think about interlock. I can't do it. Then stop interlocking fingers. You can actually have the conversation with somebody. What Paul is saying is do not do anything that provokes a sexual desire in someone that you're not married to because it's not your place to fulfill it. That's such an incredible principle. And in an ethic of love, what we ought to be saying to each other is, I don't want to play that part in your story. I don't want to be that person who plays that role. So, sexting. Just, um, no! No sexting! I mean, sending explicit words or images to somebody has one goal in mind is to provoke them and to arouse something in them that if you're not married to them, it's not your place to fulfill. And then it stirs things in you that it's not their place to fulfill. I'm not saying it's not fun. I'm not saying it's not a rush. I'm just saying it's not yours. Okay, well, how about making out? Listen, if you can make out with your significant somebody without provoking sexual desire in them, A, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) B, just saying, (laughs) just saying, you're going to do it. Um, B, Go for it. If you can figure out a magical way to do this, go for it. Otherwise, it's not your place. And let me say this, even just about clothing. If you get dressed with the explicit intention 
of drawing attention to your sexuality to arouse in somebody else or to pique their desires. Stop it. I don't care if your mom even says, you look so cute in that. I don't care if your boys are like, those Speedos are the ball, man. Like, it doesn't matter if, you're, if you know that intentionally that's your agenda. Now, please hear me say this. If we had more time, we'll talk more about this. Don't ever let some dude tell you it's your fault that I think this way. No, it's not. Guys love to say that if girls would just dress different. No, no, that's your set of issues. What I am saying, though, is if you know that you're intentionally doing something as a guy or as a girl to provoke that in another person, wear something different. Don't stir in someone else what's not yours to satisfy. The question is, how do I treat you in a way that does not provoke sexual desire in you if we aren't married? It's not what can I get away with. It's what can I keep away from for your best. Um, Next question, how do I fight giving in to sexual temptation? Um... Because this is easier said than done, but I find myself constantly struggling in this particular area. And last week, we talked about the fact that our sexuality is a powerful thing and more than most other things has the ability to overpower us if we start giving in or misusing it. And if we're honest, some of us may say of all the areas that seem, you know, to get a handle on us and we can't get a handle on, our sexuality seems to be up there. And so whether you're single or you're dating or you're engaged, um, you may say we just seem to continually lose the battle against giving into our sexual urges. How do we fight? Um, uh, the first thing is keep begging the spirit, no matter how many times you've messed up, no matter how many times you feel like you've fallen, keep begging the spirit. He's the only one who can change us at the core by applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. But beyond that, Paul gives a very simple and practical strategy. Run. Run. That's Paul's strategy. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. He says, flee, which is run from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul says, you fight sexual temptation the same way you fight a bear. You don't fight a bear. (laughs) Run. Run. When people are like, well, what you want to do is pepper spray (laughs) or punch it gently in the nose and look confident. Like, just run. Run. So dumb. So dumb. Outrun the other person, but run. Outrun the other person. That's it. That's it. You got it. It's about more flight and less fight when it comes to our sexual temptation. Distance is the best 
defense. This is huge because we often ask this question in a desire to hear kind of tricks and, and, you know, techniques to how men, well, I just want to know how I can resist those moments a little bit better. And what Paul would say is, no, sex is too powerful for you to fight against. The smartest thing to do is to run. Now, again, Paul's not saying run from your sexuality as much as he is saying Run away from people, places, or platforms that provoke sexual desire or activity in you. So listen, um, if you are in a relationship with somebody, and even sitting here, you know they would never go for this. They're going to continue to push the boundaries and want to push the boundaries and want to push the boundaries. No matter how many times I say, hey, let's not, they want to continue to push the boundaries. Paul would say to you, run. You have spent too much time in your accountability groups talking about, oh my goodness, how can we do better? If you're talking to a person who doesn't want to honor the boundaries, get out. Paul would say, flee, run. Every other sin you commit is outside the body. And his point is, but sin of your sexuality is going to affect every single area of your being. It's not worth it. And he would say, she's a bear. Run. If you and your significant struggle um, in very particular contexts, Paul would say, run away from the contexts that make it hard for you to treat each other honorably. It is amazing how many times uh, I've sat with people who tell a story that goes something like this. Um, Man, so we were at her apartment. It was like midnight, 1230, somewhere like that. And um, uh, it was dark. We were under the covers, um, (laughs) snuggling, watching a movie. Um, and man, the next thing you knew, I'm like, Ooh, what happened next? Y'all just cut all four wires. Like, uh, what happened next? Cause that's not a mystery. More times than not, that's going to end the same way. The answer to that is not saying, man, so I'm just wanting for you guys to pray for me to be stronger when I'm in the apartment at midnight. No, Paul would say, run from the contexts. Where you find yourself continually struggling that way. If you and the boys find that when you go to the, the, the restaurant with the owl, you know, um, because of the burgers are really delicious. And you find that you have a very difficult time in that context. Don't go to the burgers, owl, eyes, whatever the place is. Probably not a good idea for you to go there. But we say, pray for me. We're going to Hooters. And I just, just need like... No, just stay away. If for you the issue is the internet, then have you ever thought about fleeing from your contract, uh, disconnecting the internet? If the issue is the computer, then maybe you need to get the desktop and put it, you know, in the middle of the kitchen, like six levels up or whatever you need to do. Paul would say, run from the people, the places or the platforms. If it's your social media account, get a flip phone. Like, man, Instagram just all the time. Then don't run from Instagram. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Paul would say, run. The idea of I'm going to fight. And even this crazy idea that one day when I'm a, a, you know, a more grown, mature Christian, I'm going to be able to resist. No, a, a Christian knows I'm too smart 
to wait till I'm strong enough. So I'm going to get out of the context. Joseph in the Old Testament, when Potiphar's wife came after him, he didn't sit down and try to negotiate. He ran. And that's what Paul's recommendation would be. And so if you've not created as much distance between you and whatever it is, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a certain place you go, whether it's a certain platform you use, Paul would say, run. If you're living with somebody who's not your spouse, There's no explicit verse about it, but you know as well as I do, you are continually putting yourself in a position where you are stirring up in someone what's not yours to fulfill. And we as a church would love to come alongside you and help set you up somewhere where you don't have to continue in that place. Stop trying to be strong. Be smart. And smart knows that it's not strong enough to fight a bear. Um, man, we're going to have time for one more um, quickly. What if I married the wrong person? What if I married the wrong person? And this is the painful question often asked by married couples who look back at their story and realize that for one reason or another, they just they disregarded God's principles. They look back and realize that they defied God's design for relationships and ended up marrying someone they knew they shouldn't have married. By the way, these are couples who would look at those of you who are single or in a dating relationship and would say, please do better than we did. Now is the time to make some of these choices before you cannot unmake them. But again, this is people who got together and realized this was not God's best for us. Whether it was through an extramarital affair, whether it was um, you know, marrying someone who wasn't a follower of Jesus when you were. Um, maybe it was a couple that felt compelled to do the honorable thing, even though they otherwise would not have chosen to marry this person. Whatever it is, it's, this is a question that comes from people who feel like we ignored um, godly counsel and we blew through his guardrails. And maybe that's you and you just don't feel like I don't have a, a good story to tell my kids um, anymore. And maybe you even experience a strong temptation to feel shame and to feel stuck in a second class marriage. And maybe even go so far as to have these things working in your mind, making you crazy. Like, I married the wrong person, which means uh, the right person now is going to marry the wrong person and they're going to have all the wrong kids. I started the marriage apocalypse, you know, um, and that can work on you. A little bit. What if I married the wrong person? Um, here's the answer to that. You are married to the right person. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the person you're married to is the right person. The person you're married to is now the one for you. No matter how you got together, no matter how many grace barriers you broke through, no matter how many warnings you disregarded, no matter what pressures got you here when you said i do that person became the one the moment you said i do i love this god said me too and he unleashed every heavenly resource dispatching it and ordering it to your side 
So that you can have at your disposal everything you need to paint a picture of Christ in the way he loved the church. So you have everything you need to see this relationship soar. God is for marriage and God is for your marriage and heaven is cheering for the success and the soaring of your marriage. Every promise about marriage applies to your marriage. Every command for marriage applies to your marriage. The only question is, are you going to lean in and use every heavenly resource at your disposal to make this marriage soar because you have everything that you need. I love Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, in which it says, wives, submit to your husbands. That's awesome. And then if you look at how verse 25 starts, it says, uh, husbands, love your wives. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. But what if we got together through an adulterous relationship? Okay, is she your wife now? Yep. Then love her like Christ loved the church and paint a picture of his love for imperfect people. Oh, but but what if we got pregnant out of wedlock? Okay, but is, is he your husband now? Yeah, then submit to him. But he's a jerk. That's a different story. The point is he is your husband and heaven is cheering for you. The only name heaven has in the marital record books is the name of your spouse. God is so awesome. He can take the messes we make and rework them and restore them and make them the most beautiful thing imaginable. Do not let however you got to where you are determine where you go from here. God is giving you every resource to go as far as you are willing to go in your marriage. If you're married and you're a believer, you are married to the right person. And heaven is cheering for you. And so are we. Now, let me say, that's not a license. Because you know, you know, you will have unique things that you need to deal with because of the choices you've made. But heaven is giving you unlimited resources to deal with those things. So please hear me if you've ever sat in that weight of like, but oh my goodness, we don't have a great story to tell. Let me tell you a great story. Um, do you remember these two people, these two characters? Um, we'll put their names up on the screen. But do you remember these two guys? Yeah? Awesome story. So, yeah, uh, me and your mom, we got together because um, how I had um, I'd killed uh, her first husband, and then I took her as my wife. That's not an awesome story. But yet in the grace and the goodness and the restoring power of God, Bathsheba became the mother of the wisest man ever, Solomon. And more than that, she became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. It's your call what happens to your marriage. Because heaven is cheering for you regardless of how you got to where you are today. Um, I'm so glad, by the way, we're not going to be able to get any further. I'm so glad that we get to celebrate communion together this morning. Because isn't communion a picture of Jesus Christ selflessly and sacrificially giving himself to erase every mess we've made, to erase every mistake in our past, to forgive us and give us a new future? And we get to celebrate that together today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your story. 
And even as you partake in communion, I hope that you will make that declaration. Jesus' body was broken for my freedom and Jesus' blood was shed for my forgiveness. Whatever my marriage was like before I came in today, it can be different because of Jesus. Whatever mistakes I've made sexually in the past, they can be made new. I get to start over when I walk out of this building because of Jesus. And I do, I pray that communion will mean something so meaningful to you that the future is now on you because Jesus Christ has forgiven and he set you free to move forward. Let me read this passage of scripture even as the band um, comes out. 1 Corinthians chapter um, 11 verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, which we're about to do, and whenever you drink this cup, which we're about to do, you proclaim, you declare the Lord's death. The Lord's forgiveness, the Lord's grace, the Lord's fresh starts, the Lord's new mercy until he comes. Your past is forgiven. Your shame is gone. And I just hope that even as you walk out of this room having taken communion, you open the door and you walk into the light of the hallway of the lobby, that will be a reminder to you of fresh and new beginnings because of what Jesus Christ has done. We get to live a beautiful story because of him.